Sir Balper and the team of Nebraska. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly Monday appearance. This is a weekly Monday appearance. The managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. And what follows as he does uh, each week on the program, Dave Cameron endeavors on this edition of the program to analyze all baseball. Of particular note this week, the, the Washington Nationals have played quite poorly since the All-Star break, going 10-20 and 20 over the first 30 games since the break. Dave Cameron examined uh, the causes for what you might term a collapse. He, uh, he investigated the, the causes of it. Uh, we discussed those briefly on what follows and extend the conversation uh, to ask what is to be done about it. Because one notes in the projected standings at, uh, at the site that the Washington Nationals already have the highest rest-of-season winning percentage. That is the highest projected rest-of-season winning percentage among all teams in the majors. We talk about not making changes and the courage required to do so. We also discuss Doug Melvin, now former Milwaukee Brewers GM Doug Melvin, who was recently reassigned in the Brewers organization. Consider what went right for Melvin during his tenure uh, with Milwaukee, an attempt to understand the logic behind deploying uh, Unieski Betancourt and Alex Gonzalez at first base for an extended period of time. Updates on uh, Chase Utley, the, the trademarker for Chase Utley, the future for the now former Detroit Tigers GM Dave Dombrowski. He has a number of suitors, it would appear. But also a brief consideration right at the beginning of our conversation of the Sabre Seminar this weekend in Boston, which features on Friday night uh, drinks at Mead Hall in Cambridge. So that is considered in what follows. What we ought to consider right away is our sponsor. Our sponsor is Draft. Draft is the first truly mobile fantasy sports app. Are you familiar with DraftKings or are you familiar with FanDuel, for example? Those are daily fantasy sites. Draft is made specifically for your mobile device or iPad. It is currently available for iOS, available at the App Store. It will very soon be available for Android. What you might think of as something like Words with Friends, except for fantasy sports. You conduct a very brief snake draft. You each select five players for the day, two pitchers, three hitters, and you see who wins. Would you Would you care to play against a friend? You can do this. Would you care to play against a stranger? This is also a possibility. Furthermore, do you have any interest in wagering American dollars on the outcome of these fantasy games? You can also do that. One feature that I particularly like is the chat feature. What I will do is I will use the messaging feature within the draft app to maintain a line of communication uh, with my friends. Because if we did not have sport as a pretense on which to communicate, we probably wouldn't communicate at all. Uh, really, it's probably fair to say that draft is the only thing keeping my friendships alive. Is it sad? Potentially. Potentially it is, but it's my sadness. So there it is. Okay, what is it? It's the Draft app. It's available at the App Store. That's the sponsor, Draft. Download it. And with that, we've reached the end of the introduction. It is time to move on. What it is, Fangraphs Audio features Dave Cameron, the managing editor of Fangraphs.com, and it begins right now. Are you good? I, we talked earlier today. I thought maybe you had a little congestion. Yeah, I'm fighting a cold. You, you, you were fighting a cold uh, recently. Yeah, I got over that one, and now I got a new one. Is this because of your baby? Well, the baby doesn't have a cold this time, so I like to try and blame it on the baby, but uh, if the baby gave this one to me, he managed to fight it off himself, mm. which is weird. 
Yeah. So I either have a super immune resistant baby, which is, would be good. I guess immune resistant. You don't want them to be resistant to immune. <laughs> <laughs> I have a, I have a, either have a baby with a great immune system or I have a terrible one, uh, which is actually why we had to push the podcast back half an hour because I had to go make sure I didn't have leukemia. And I oh. don't, which is good news. Wait, you, how do you do that? How do you just go in and for a checkup, leukemia they, checkup? They stab you in the arm, take some blood, send it to the lab, and then they compare your hemoglobin levels and uh, a few other things and see if you're in the normal range. Can I ask, would, either when you or your doctor was ever saying the word hemoglobin, did, did either of you ever once say hemogoblin and kind of crack up? Uh, I don't think I've said it, but I've definitely written hemoglobin more times than I can count. It's a very easy uh, thing to uh, typo on. Yeah, hemoglobin is a funny. Gob, the word goblin itself is a is a word that'll make you chuckle. I and feel like hemoglobins should be like some kind of independent league team. Like maybe they're playing the Sonoma Stompers this weekend. Oh, that's a good point. Or maybe it could be the hemoglobins. It could be like um, <clears throat> isn't there isn't there a great cancer hospital in Minnesota somewhere, for example? Yeah, yeah. There's a, a pretty famous just general hospital in Minnesota. Okay. But where's the one? Oh, there was also a branch of one in Phoenix. Yeah, I think. It's the same, same one. It's called the Mayo Clinic. You may have heard of it. Oh, yeah, the Mayo Clinic. That's what I'm yeah. getting at. Yeah. 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 And they could be maybe wherever, if if there happens to be a town where there where there's a Mayo Clinic, they could have the hemogoblins. Uh, yeah, it, it could also be like a really terrible, like, uh, pickup basketball team name of like some like oncologists who think they're clever. Mm-hmm. Because I played in the pickup basketball league, this and there were some really terrible names in that in that league. Yeah. I, I don't think there were the Hemogoblins, but there could have been. Okay, just be a fantasy team name. I think. Yeah, so. I guarantee you, someone listening to this is already like renaming their auto new team the Hemogoblins. That's pretty. Oh, I think it's a decent name. Um, let's see. Uh, I was not going to necessarily ask you about it this way, but uh, well, first of all, great that you don't have leukemia. Yeah, especially because I just got checked like a week and a half ago. It would have been really sad if it was like four-year remission and then like it lasted four years and a few days. Yeah, but uh, listen, so that uh, dovetails nicely with an important event, an event uh, about which you care a lot. And this is this this counts to some degree as a promotional segment, what's about to follow, but it's really the promote – it's both – to learn more about um, – to, to understand baseball better and also to get rid of cancer, and that's the Sabre Seminar uh, pretty soon coming up in, in Cambridge. Yes, yeah, this weekend. Uh, in terms of promotional, this is like a really lousy time to be promoting it because I think ticket sales ended today or end today or yep. will have ended by the time people listen to this podcast. So, yeah, well, you know. <laughs> we didn't talk about it earlier. But isn't there isn't there an event that's open to everyone? Don't we do this thing with the – yeah, Friday night, uh, we're doing like a pre-Saber seminar meetup at Mead Hall in Cambridge. Uh, so if you want to come hang out and drink and uh, talk baseball, the, the upper floor of Mead Hall is where you go. Uh, there's no charge or anything. Just come in and hang out, and you have to pay for your own beer. But, you know, uh, it's good time. I will be there at some point. I, uh, I have a flight that doesn't get into Logan Airport until like 6.45 and the event starts at 7, so I don't think I'm going to be on time, but right. I'll be there eventually. Who's arranging it? Who's in charge? Paul Swyden? Paul Swyden is the put-it-together guy, yeah. Well, that's good that we have him because if you were just getting in, if you were going to be late, it would be unfortunate. I will be there, I think, yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, maybe I won't come then. Yeah. Don't worry. I won't be there for the rest of the weekend. Okay, good. Uh-huh. Uh, but it would be good to see you and good to see Paul Swyden and... Paul Swyden's, all of his beard. 
Uh, does he have a beard? He usually does, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm not super observant when it comes to facial hair, mostly because I just can't grow any, so yeah. I think I just get, like, bitter at people who can. Yeah, he trims it nicely. Now, the what, every, all of the proceeds from the Sabre Seminar, though, go to go to the Jimmy Fund, is that right? Yes, not the event this Friday night. All the mm-hmm. proceeds this Friday night go to Mead Hall, which is a yeah. for-profit beer company or a restaurant establishment they get all they get all their profits on friday night but yeah the weekend uh conference saber seminar is 100 percent for the jimmy fund which is uh you know the boston based uh at least i think it's boston based uh jim valvano uh foundation for cancer research so uh wait whoa 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 whoa. i don't think it is wait is it the jim valvano it was a little kid named jimmy from like the 50s Oh really? The Jimmy Fund, yeah, it's been around. It's been around since before Jim Valvano had. Oh, so the sure. Jimmy Fund and the Jimmy V Fund are not the same thing? No, they're not. But the Jimmy Fund is great as well. Oh well, uh, maybe we should edit that part of the podcast, then. <laughs> or you could just leave it in and make me look like an idiot. I'm. I would imagine that's what you're gonna do. I'm, bo- I'm yes, I'm voting for the letter. It was founded in 1948, which is possibly okay. I'm, I'm well, getting against Jim Valvano. Maybe also when Jimmy Valvano was founded, right? Yeah, that's it's very possible. Yeah, uh, yeah, there was a kid. Uh, the boy who launched the Jimmy Fund. His name was uh, Jimmy. Yeah, his name was Jimmy. I'm uh, sorry. I was a Jimmy Gustafson. It appears to be the case. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry, Jimmy Gustafson, for uh, misattributing your your fund for someone else's fund. In fact, his name was not Jimmy. Even it was Einar Gust- Gustafson, but they called him Jimmy. Anyway, yeah, it's okay. It's fine. There are multiple people named Jimmy who've had cancer, yeah, and we, it's true. we, in all of their names, we should be helping it out. Well, we should note that uh, John Farrell was actually scheduled to speak at the event this coming Saturday. Uh, probably won't be coming anymore now that he has announced that he has lymphoma. Right. Uh, right. Well, I was going to ask about that. Starting starting chemo tomorrow, so uh, you know we'll be missing uh, one of our guest panelists uh, because he has cancer. Uh, so all the more reason to give money to. Uh, the Jimmy Fund, the Jimmy V Fund, uh, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, whatever kind of anti-cancer group you want to give it to, do right. that. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Uh, I especially endorse the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society because uh, John Farrell has lymphoma and I had leukemia and, you know, blood cancers suck. So yeah, I mean, all, can- all cancers suck, but I think that leukemia especially sucks. Although to, uh, I was looking at uh, some of the numbers regarding stage 1 lymphoma, which I believe is what he's been diagnosed with. Yeah. And it seems as though... If you're going to choose one, it's not... That's a good one to have. Right, especially if yeah. you're... He seems like... He's probably like an active man, active adult. It seems to that, that there are certain, like, signifiers of risk, and he doesn't have many of them. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, it's funny how when you get diagnosed... I mean, I can speak from experience. When I got diagnosed, they were like, okay, so we know you have some kind of leukemia based on your blood levels, like the tests we run, confirm you have leukemia, but we have to do all these extra tests to find out what kind of leukemia, and if you have... You know, so I had a acute myeloid leukemia, which is the worst of all the leukemias. You don't, you really don't want to have that one. Uh, but they were like, yeah, if you have ALL, which is an acute lymphoblastic leukemia, mm-hmm. no big deal. Like your success rate is like 95%. You take a pill for a few years, you're fine. Like, uh, so there's like this wide range of, uh, you get leukemia, you could be totally fine, and it's no big deal. A lot of people live with chronic leukemia for a long time. Uh, so there's lots, you know, wide varieties of cancer. It sounds like John Farrell has one of the better ones to have if you have to have it. Right. If you yeah, if you're tasked with having it, yeah. Well, so hopefully, hopefully his uh, outcome is is as good as mine has been so far. Yes, I I hope all of that. I hope all of that. Uh, let's. Uh, um, <laughs> this is this might be a crudely fashioned segue. Uh, you say you're talking about good outcomes. Uh, 
A baseball team with a bad outcome, Dave Cameron, has been the Washington Nationals. Yeah, this season has been their equivalent of getting cancer. It's sort of, well, they, well, in particular, right, because it seems as though they were attacked by, by a, a virus of some sort, like right around the All-Star break. Is that, is that, well, I guess they've had troubles all along, but Bryce Harper was helping to mask them. Yeah, I mean, the first half of the season, they were not as good as expected. Uh, you know, a large part because all of their not Bryce Harper, Max Scherzer players, and Jordan Zimmerman's had a good year too. So they had a few guys playing very well. And then a lot of guys really performing quite poorly. But Harper and Scherzer were so good. Uh, and you know, Drew Storen was excellent in the first half. It wasn't across the board that everyone was terrible. You know, Yunel Escobar had a good first half. Like there were other contributors as well. Right. But, uh, a large part of their core was struggling. Uh, but their stars were being starry enough to make up for it. And then, you know, really kind of around the trade deadline, beginning of August or so, uh, Bryce Harper stopped hitting home runs and Max Scherzer started giving up runs and home runs. And that kind of uncovered the fact that everyone else on the team or a lot of guys on the team have been pretty terrible. And I think they're four and 12 in August. They're 10 and 20 since the all-star break. Uh, they are now a game under 500 when they're supposed to be, you know, one of the three or four best teams in baseball probably. Um, so certainly not the, the 2015 season the Nationals were hoping for to this point. Right. Okay. So here's the question, though. Right. It, well, and first of all, you mentioned Bryce Harper slowed down. He's still what? He's still hitting almost 50% better than the league since the All Star break. Yeah, his 143 WRC plus co- constitutes a slump because of how good he was earlier yeah, was in the year. Right. 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 Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> uh, um, the, 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 right. You you mentioned that the team was supposed to be one of the top three or four. They still have, according to our projections, they still have the highest rest of season winning percentage among among all major league teams. Yeah, I think part of that is strength of schedule. So I think if you look at like their kind of rest of season winning percentage mm-hmm. on the standings page, uh, it's 560, uh, which puts them as a good team, not an amazing team, but you know, like it's still good. I think behind only the Dodgers, but kind of in the same range as the Pirates and Blue Jays, and like not. Uh, you know, not a 600 team, like the playoff odds rest of season projection. Uh, and the difference there is the rest of season schedule. Like the, the playoff odds page includes the, uh, games remaining against the Marlins and Phillies and the, they have the Rockies and Brewers and Padres coming up. The national schedule the rest of the way is really weak. And so, uh, the good news for the Nationals is as bad as they've been, they still have, uh, a pretty easy road. Uh, ahead of them over the next six weeks, and and if they can play something close to 600 ball, it's not entirely out of the realm of possibility that they can steal the division back from the Mets, who they've tried to hand it to. Okay, so here's a, here's a question: uh, If your team, I mean, humans do this all the time, right? If you're struggling in whatever capacity, you say you you ask, what uh, what do I need to change in order to prevent this? But there are obviously cases where. Uh, where change is not necessary. If you were to change, the chances are you would be changing for the worse. And so, um, obviously, there's, they're limited by what they can do just because the non-waiver trade deadline has already passed. But is there is there a particular tact the Nationals ought to be taking, or is it really merely an instance they have to essentially trust the fact that they're they have a talented roster, even if that has not necessarily led to the sort of the number of wins you might expect. 
Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of those cases where not doing anything is probably better than doing something just to do something. I mean, I think in the article I wrote today, the one thing I think I put forward that they can potentially do is fire Matt Williams. It's not that firing Matt Williams is going to fix all their problems, but it doesn't appear obvious that Matt Williams is helping them in any way, shape, or form. So if you were going to do something, maybe just get rid of the one guy who, like, there's not a lot of evidence that he's actually contributing to the team winning and and, you know, maybe even getting rid of them might send some kind of message or maybe it would, you know, spark the team in some way that we can't quantify. Uh, but if you're going to do something, that's maybe the thing to do because... But is it, probably, is it clear that he's actively hurting the team as well? It's, I mean, it's not in the sense of, like, we can't... We're just not at the point where we can quantify how much managers mean. Uh, we can take some wild guesses, like we think Joe Madden's pretty good and we think Buck Showalter's good, but we don't really know exactly how good they are. And... Uh, so we can't say with a certainty that Matt Williams is destroying the Nationals, but we can watch him manage on a daily basis and see like some of the things he does in terms of uh, in-game strategy and be like, yeah, this is not not optimal. And like, this is a guy who per- pretty clearly doesn't understand probability all that well and makes some decisions that are just kind of old-school gut-based decisions that don't make a lot of sense analytically. Um, so we can't say that Matt Williams is, you know, like dragging down the Nationals, but he doesn't appear to be helping. So if they were going to do something, I'd say you get rid of the guy who you think might be the replacement level guy on your team. Uh, and that's, you know, he's probably their, their weakest link at this point. Yeah, but, but the rest of the guys, I mean, what are you going to do? You're not going to get rid of Anthony Rendon. You're not going to get rid of uh, Steven Strasburg and Gio Gonzalez. Like, you just have to hope they start playing better. Right. I guess, oh, I guess, well, I guess that's the interesting thing, right? It's you're less likely, uh, like with Strasburg and Gonzalez, right? Uh, there are a couple of indications. One, their track records are strong. And two, yeah. um, and partially, you know, based on that, their their projections are strong. Yeah. Uh, and you expect them to regress positively, whereas yeah. I guess progress. Goes with, with, progress. Yeah. yeah. You can you can have positive regression. Isn't it positive? Yeah, that's called progression. Oh, progression. There, oh, it's yeah. sort of a poor man too, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> the uh, but with the manager, uh, I suppose. I suppose that like his decision making, decision making must be something that uh, becomes reliable pretty quickly. Is that right? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I so I think like I just ha- I hesitate to have like really strong opinions about managers because this is just such an area where we just don't really know enough to have strong opinions. Uh, and I think like Clint Hurdle is maybe like the great example of like you know not prejudging a guy. Like when he was in Colorado, he was about as old school as it gets and. Uh, was not successful. I mean, he, you know, he had a decent run for a little while, but overall, uh, was not a great manager. When the Pirates hired him, they got a little bit ridiculed for kind of picking an old school retread, you know, not going, uh, kind of out of the box and, and hiring someone with a little bit more creativity. And now Hurdle is maybe leading the most analytically progressive field staff in baseball. And so, uh, you know, Clint Hurdle's past didn't predict Clint Hurdle's future. Uh, that's probably the outlier. I don't think that most managers are going to make that kind of 180, but I don't, I don't know how we can predict how receptive people are going to be to new ideas when they're presented to them, right? Like a lot of these guys might be old school because that's how they were raised, but if you put them in the right context, uh, maybe they're going to be receptive. I think we've seen that a little bit with Don Mattingly in, in Los Angeles. It was assumed that Andrew Friedman would fire him immediately, especially when Joe Madden opted out of his contract in Tampa Bay, and the Dodgers stuck with him badly and said, you know what, we think this is a guy who can listen to what we have to say and listen to new ideas, and, uh, you know, this is, we're, we're gonna go forward with this guy who wasn't necessarily our pick, but we think can adapt to what we're doing, and so, um, you know, I don't, I don't know that we can say Matt Williams has been bad, so Matt Williams will continue to be bad, 
especially because we can't even say for sure that Matt Williams has been bad. Like we think he probably has been, but we're not. We can't have that much confidence in that. You brought up Clinton Hurdle. Do, do you have a, an example or two of um, sort of choices, decisions that Hurdle has made or statements he's made, which uh, sort of reveal uh, this, this change? Well, I think probably the biggest thing, uh, you know, I haven't read through the entire thing yet, but I know uh, the uh, big data baseball by Travis Sochik gets into a lot of kind of the Pirates renaissance, especially in relating to bringing analytics to the players. Uh, and one of the main things that they've done is take a guy named Mike Fitzgerald and take him on the road with him and essentially turn him into a member of their staff. And this is a guy who was a front office uh, uh, hire. So they basically took someone out of their front office, an analytical guy, put him in the clubhouse, made him accessible to the players, empowered him. Hurdle basically told the players that this is a guy they should listen to and get information from and really kind of integrated the front office and the managerial staff together in a way that other organizations have struggled to do. I mean, we've seen teams like the Astros, you know, a couple of years ago just went crazy with shifting and Bo Porter flipped out and a lot of the players hated it. And they just had a tough time getting their ideas from the front office down to the field where the Pirates seem to have more than any other franchise figured out a way to work uh, together and and kind of take the information out of the the nerds and the stat cave uh, in the front office and and give it to the players and get the players to buy into it as something that isn't just a you know a way to cost them money. Well, right. So the challenge the challenge is in communicating the advantages, right, in terms that the players or coaches can understand. Not, and I don't mean that when I say terms, but I guess I guess making it clear that. The, the the numbers or the whatever sort of findings uh, with which you're presenting them are ultimately going to benefit those players. Right. That's the buy-in, right? right. Like it, the players have to believe that this is being done for their own benefit as well as the team's greater good, or else they might be skeptical and say, whatever, you're just, you know, uh, like bullpen by committee is maybe the best example of this, right? Like I think the analytics and the kind of the numbers show that if you could mix and match your relievers and not really care about set roles, you'd probably be better off in a vacuum. But the one guy not getting 40 saves, it's going to cost him money, and he's going to resist that because if he gets 10 saves instead of 40 saves when he goes to arbitration or free agency, he's going to take you know a 50% pay cut or something. And so he's going to say, you know, you, all you're trying to do is bring our costs down. And I think labor is uh, specifically suspicious of, of employers uh, when they come up with some kind of new system that the end result is less money going into the players' pockets or a redistribution of money. And so I think when you're getting these ideas into the players' hands, you have to get past this idea that it's management trying to keep costs down. Is there any, is there any possible, I suppose because of the power dynamics, it would be less the case, but is there any reverse of that where it seems as though the players are attached to something. No, let's see. Wait, in this particular case, we have the players who are suspicious of a change because it appears as though management is trying to deflate. Is there any way in which the is there like thing that the players have tried to advance that teams might have been slow to move on because they've been worried? I guess they're always trying to. They would be trying to reduce costs anyway. Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't think players are generally leading the charge on like new technologies or new ideas. Players generally are, you know, just trying to do what they were taught to do. Right. Is there is there an example of a player who is doing something to help his team and the team the, the team is somehow actively resistant to it? I can think of an example like with Trevor Bauer, right, where Trevor Bauer appears to have gone above and beyond uh, 
what's asked of him by the Cleveland organization. I think according to Eno Saris's uh, most recent uh, interview with Trevor Bauer, uh, Bauer has had a TrackMan installed into in his house so he can study the the way that um, the different ways he's able to create spins. Um, but that does not necessarily seem – at least it hasn't helped him for the present, even though it, it might, as he claims, help him for the future. Yeah, I mean, I think Bauer, especially his time in Arizona, is probably an, an interesting example of a guy who was more forward-thinking than his teammates and his organization. And uh, you can like probably make some legitimate criticisms of how Bauer handled his forward-thinkingness or his ability to to be a little bit of a different cat. And uh, it certainly alienated a lot of his teammates, uh, including his, his catcher, which I think you want to have a good relationship with your catcher in general uh, if you're a pitcher. And, you know, uh, the, the front office essentially dumped him uh, because they uh, didn't like his personality and didn't like the way he approached the game and he came off as uncoachable. So I think that, you know, that's an example maybe of a guy who – uh, was curious about the way baseball worked and challenged some of the preconceived notions and said, look, I'm not just going to do what you tell me to do just because we've always done it this way. I'm going to try and find new ways to, to do it. And the team was skeptical of his ideas and said, look, we, you know, you're the player. We're the employer. Do what we say. We're paying you to do a job. And we're not paying you to think in a, you know, we're not paying you to come up with new ideas. We're paying you to throw a baseball. Mm-hmm. Is there, a, do, do you have a sense of what would happen? This is highly hypothetical. Say Bauer had, uh, pretty quickly uh, developed into, you know, if not necessarily an ace-level pitcher, you know, at least like a dependable number two, right? Do you, do you think that the Diamondbacks would have acted the same way? Maybe. I mean, I think, like, you know, Zach Greinke is probably uh, not too dissimilar. He hasn't been as vocal about his curiosities and uh but i think Greinke's a uh, generally considered to be a weird dude by baseball player standards he goes to games and scouts and sits in the draft room and like is really interested in the business side of baseball and uh will openly kind of talk about his um way of approaching the i mean when he won the cy young award he said he all he cares about is his fip like you know this is not a normal uh normal major league player uh, and, you know, he obviously has turned into a very good pitcher and has been fairly well-traveled, right? Like, the, he went from the Royals to the Brewers to the Angels uh, to the Dodgers. I mean, he's, you know, a, a number one and number two starter who's been on four teams already. So uh, I think there might be something to being a little bit quirky and unorthodox, uh, making it harder for you to just find an organization and stay there forever. Right. And uh, also it seems like now we, these are the certain guys we've talked about integrating uh, some sort of advanced concepts into their play. It, it, you, there needs to be, like you were suggesting, maybe the um, you know, the Pirates have found in Mike Fitzgerald. Was that the the uh, yeah. employee? Who, someone who is good at just you know talented at communicating is naturally likable. Yeah. Um, although it's you know it's probably by feeling somewhat mm-hmm. awkward that one finds oneself conducting and research by himself already, especially if you're an athlete. Athletes just have access to people and social situations anyway, so it would be. It seems like it requires something like particularly special for for an athlete to become uh, a bit of a social outsider. Yeah, I mean, I think like the dynamic of athletes dealing with non-athletes is probably an interesting one to study. I mean, I'm not the right guy to study it necessarily because I haven't spent much time in clubhouses, but I think if you talk to you know, guys who've been around the game for a while and watched how athletes kind of interacted with each other and then interacted with people who aren't athletes, I bet that would be kind of a fascinating dichotomy and say, like, here's how they kind of 
uh, have their own language and their own ability to communicate with each other because they have common things in common and things that make sense to each other and uh, shared experiences, which is a lot of how people bond is kind of going through things together. And then even if you take someone who you know, has good ideas and is a good communicator and has all those interpersonal skills, if he doesn't have that shared experience and those shared bonds, they are still probably going to be somewhat hesitant to accepting what he has to say. Um, and so, you know, it'd be, I think it'd be fascinating to hear kind of after maybe he's done working for the Pirates, uh, Fitzgerald, like, t- talk about what, how he got the players on his side. Maybe it was just, you know, Clint Hurdle just telling them they had to be, and maybe it, was, it took an endorsement from an authority figure, but what it was that got the Pirates players to buy in when so many players on so many other teams have resisted the same ideas. You know, I was thinking of another player who has performed in a way that might be contrary to his own uh, to, to ultimately contrary to his ability to make money, for example, uh, but actually would help him, his development in the long run, and that's uh, Tuki Toussaint. I, I remember uh, from a previous edition of the program with Kyle McDaniel, he related how I think maybe as a junior in high school, Tuki Toussaint actually uh, st- stopped uh, maxing out on his velocity. Um, so he was sitting more in the low 90s maybe as opposed to mid, mid-90s uh, when scouts would come to his games because he um, he saw it as like a long-term benefit for his arm. And also he started throwing a changeup despite the fact that he, in the league in which he was playing, like a lot of dominant high school pitchers, he didn't need to throw a changeup. So you have a sense here of a pitcher who's acutely aware of his the importance of these sorts of steps to his long-term development, uh, perhaps – you know, while sacrificing uh, attention in the short term. Yeah, I mean, I think that that kind of long-term, short-term trade-off is a lot of what front offices do on a daily basis, especially when they're talking about trades, but even on player development, right, where you talk about, like, okay, if we restrict this guy from throwing a certain type of pitch, which, you know, a lot of teams do, they'll take a breaking ball away from a guy and say, we want you to work on this other thing, and he'll post worse numbers, then if you had any intention of trading that guy that, you know, maybe in the next couple of years using him as a trade chip, then you have to explain to every team you're in negotiations with, like, yeah, I know our pitching prospect has been underachieving, but that's because we took away one of his pitches, and, like, you have to basically resell the guy. So you're kind of devaluing your own asset for long-term uh, rewards, hopefully. And, you know, uh, so I think it's one of those interesting choices that people have to make every day in front offices, you don't necessarily think of players having to make that same choice, but certainly uh, there are probably instances where players do have to make that same short-term, long-term consideration, and, and uh, you know maybe not on the same scale or maybe not as frequently, but it would be fascinating to hear a player talk about how he uh, kind of evaluated the short-term reward versus the long-term development of his own self. Right. Um, you mentioned Zach Greinke. Zach Greinke was part of a deal. Um, first of all, he was well, he was first acquired by the Milwaukee Brewers, uh, um, a, a deal uh, a deal overseen by then uh, Brewers GM Doug Melvin, and then he was traded to the uh, traded. He was traded. Yeah, he was traded to. He was traded the to Angels. the Angels. Yeah, he was traded yep. to the Angels. That's how they got to it with Johnny Helwig and. Um, Gene Segura. Gene Segura and Ariel Pena, yeah. yeah. Uh, you mentioned uh, in a post you did for Just About Outside that that deal was one of the, the problems uh, for Doug Melvin. Another one of the problems for Doug Melvin, and uh, of course we mentioned this because he uh, was recently dismissed from his position. Now was he – well, all right. So, what was the terminology used to describe Dombrowski? Was it Dave Dombrowski was released from his contract? Released from his contract, and Doug then, Melvin was uh, will be transitioned to an advisory role. Okay. So, so staying in the organization. 
yeah. not fired, uh, but no longer GM after he helps find his own replacement. I think that's an. Do you think that's an awkward? Is that? I mean, is that awkward? If someone was just given the job that you occupied for, you know, what a decade roughly. Uh, hey, twelve or thirteen years. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think it's probably no more awkward than getting fired, right? Like, right, but you're still you in the same office, aren't you? In theory. Yeah, I don't know. If I came to you and said, Carson, you know, the podcast is a disaster. Uh, <laughs> really, you know, you ruined the site with not grass for years, and we yeah. put up with it for as long as possible. Yeah. Uh, we're either going to fire you, and you're not going to get paid anymore, and you're going to be unemployed, uh-huh. or we're going to let you just, you know, hang around and make jokes and stay on the payroll, and you won't really have to do any work. Uh, oh, okay, wait, I want wait. Can we can we arrange this now? Uh, you know, uh, I don't know how much you not doing any work would change. Ah, that's what you're doing now. Is that a burn I see? Do you, uh, you maybe appear to be burning me? Okay, yeah. very good. Uh, one thing that the Brewers did uh, in the last couple of years of uh, Melvin's tenure is to, and you note this as well, is to employ Unieski, Betancourt, and Alex Gonzalez, and not just employ them, but to play them at first base. Yeah, that was a bad idea. It's such a bad idea, but I'm curious, is there, could you find, I don't know how, you know, to what degree you looked into that move in particular, could you find any justification for that? Because is there not, right now, is there not at any time, just a first baseman somewhere who you yeah. could acquire for cash considerations who would out-hit either Unieski, Betancourt, or Alex Gonzalez? At, at all times in the minor leagues, <laughs> there's some... Slugger, and for the last 15 years, his name was Mike Kessman, right? Like we had this guy hitting 450 home runs in Triple A and like setting the all-time home run record. Uh, there was always someone like that. But Clint, or, I mean, it wasn't Clint Robinson also that yeah, guy. Yeah, right. I mean, there's like you know uh, an army of these you know league average hitters who don't field their position particularly well and don't run the bases, so they're replacement level players. But they can at least like draw some walks and hit a double every once in a while and like not completely embarrass you at first base. Uh, and the Brewers cycled through a few guys they thought were kind of like that. I mean, they know Matt Gamel kind of fit that mold, and right. he was terrible for 75 at-bats. Well, yeah, him. and then he also he suffered consecutive yeah, like he blew, his, he blew out his knee like every week. Right, uh, he's actually it, now. I was he's in the uh, in, I believe he's in the Atlantic League right now. Oh, does that league not require knees? Well, I, I, he appears to have recovered at least to some degree. Okay. Uh, but well, he has been... Anyway, they had guys like that that they tried and then they failed, you know, in short terms. And so they just kind of got tired of, uh, you know, going with untested kids. And so they went for the, you know, proven terrible veteran mold with Betancourt and Gonzalez and Lyle Overbay and some of these guys who just weren't going to help them, but at least were recognizable names to people. Right. Yeah, recognizable to people, um, but not recognized as as first baseman at all. I mean, do you think it's just a, 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 if you were to attempt to find a justification for uh, deploying that combo package of Betancourt and Gonzalez at first base, would it be this, for example, that they acquired those players with the idea that they offered positional flexibility and first base was one of the positions they could cover? Yeah, I mean, I think, like, the actual defense would be those guys played first base in seasons that weren't going anywhere anyway, so it didn't really matter, like, whether you, you know, run out Unieski Betancourt or some kind of 4A first baseman who doesn't have a future, it doesn't really, like, it, you know, it, the long-term impact on your franchise is not very high. Oh, maybe it's a positive impact, because then you creep uh, further up the draft, the draft rankings. Yeah, but I think like the loss of revenue associated with losing more games is actually more harmful than getting a higher pick because the differences between draft picks just aren't that isn't that high. So I reject that hypothesis. But nice try. 
Okay. But do, well, it's you reject the hypothesis. Does Doug Melvin reject it? Uh, I, probably, I don't know any GM who would intentionally lose games in order to get higher picks. Even when the Astros were burning their system to the ground, it wasn't because they valued the high picks so much as much as it was they uh, just wanted to replenish their farm system with as many good players as they could. They were kind of you know going with a quantity approach. and um, So it wasn't that they were like, oh, yeah, we'd rather pick third than seventh. Uh, they were just like, yeah, you know, we're just going to get as many uh, interesting players for the future as we can, and so we're going to get rid of anyone who's over the age of 27 or something, and we're going to lose 110 games and deal with it. Uh, but I don't think it's necessarily because they were trying to get a, you know, a higher draft selection. Okay. Uh, a couple. I would like a couple updates from you. One of them on the the GM who was uh, released from that we mentioned uh, released from his contract with Detroit Tigers, Dave Dombrowski. Uh, yeah. A highly among the he's a he's a highly sought after free agent. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, is it, uh, well, that's a, maybe a, is he, he's a highly sought after free agent? Question mark. Yeah, I think he is sought after. I think it's interesting to see. Uh, where he'll go. So like the rumored places right off the bat were Toronto because they have an open presidency job. Paul Beeston is retiring. They tried to steal Dan Duquette away from the Orioles last year and talked to Kenny Williams and the White Sox and like have been trying to get other executives from other teams, uh, you know, in a fairly high profile way. So I think they're the most obvious fit because they were the team looking for someone like Dombrowski not that long ago. Uh, but you know, uh, the Milwaukee job is now open. It, it sounds like they're not going to go in that direction since they want to go young and analytical, and that's not Dombrowski, but that job is open now. Uh, Boston was rumored uh, as a potential uh, fit now that Larry Lucchino has stepped down as CEO. Um, and I think, you know, the Red Sox, you could argue, could use some kind of change this offseason given how poorly their last two seasons have gone. Uh, and then I think the, the Mariners are probably the team that was kind of also, uh, and the Angels, the Mariners and Angels both, uh, AL West teams who, um, maybe have an opening, the Angels certainly have an opening, but maybe not for somebody who, uh, wants as much power as Dabrowski will, given that they already chose Mike Sosha over Jerry Depoto. Uh, and the Mariners could have an opening if they fire Jack Sorensic, uh, and, from what I've kind of heard with rumblings around the league, that's probably the most likely option right now is that the the Mariners might outbid the Blue Jays and, and basically hand their baseball operations staff over to Dombrowski if he'll take the job. Okay. All right. This, uh, that's one update uh, for which I was looking. Another one on the, the state of Chase Utley. Uh, Chase Utley. Chase Utley, not Chase Itley, which is a combination of a pronoun and an adverb. Uh, Chase Utley uh, as a trade candidate. Uh, yeah, he's theoretically uh, been close to getting traded a couple times. Apparently the Giants made an offer and thought they might be getting close to getting him, and then the Angels thought they might be getting close to getting him. Uh, it sounds like cash is probably the holdup here, is that, you know, Utley has a full no-trade clause. It can't be, he can't go anywhere without his own permission, and he's kind of using that no-trade clause to try and get his 2016 option either picked up or uh, playing time guaranteed in some way for next year. Uh, so even if they don't pick up the option, maybe they can work out, you know, a, a smaller, you know, $9 million deal instead of $11 million deal, something along those lines, mm-hmm. uh, where it sounds like he wants a contract in place so he doesn't have to be a free agent this winter because he, I think he knows that 36, coming off this kind of season, uh, he might have a hard time attracting jobs. He might end up like Stephen Drew or something. And so he wants to try and get himself a job for next year and sees this as his leverage. Uh, it doesn't seem like... Either the Giants, who have Joe Panic and don't necessarily need a second baseman, or the Angels, who uh, have already spent almost all of their money, uh, are particularly uh, fond of the idea of guaranteeing Chase Utley 2016 money. So 
uh, it might turn into a staring contest and see whether Utley drops that demand or if one of the teams say, you know what, you know, 10 million bucks or whatever it's going to be for Chase Utley for next year isn't that bad. Uh, we'll just do it just to improve our team for the rest of the season. Odds that it, they would actually utilize a, a real staring contest to decide the outcome of that. Uh, maybe half a percent. Half a percent. It's yeah. probably low, I was thinking. I don't know if yeah. Chase Utley, I don't know if he's like a very playful guy who would maybe well, just say, all right, yeah, let's see. If it comes down to that, I would volunteer in Chase Utley's stead because oh, I think I would probably you, be you would be a valuable, yeah. you would be a valuable commodity because yeah. you don't know, I, you don't I will know sell how to my staring services to anyone mm-hmm. who's listening. Mm-hmm. And, uh, finally, uh, is there any uh, any other players uh, going to be changing hands of note? Any players of note going to be changing hands? I mean, I don't think we're going to see any huge deals. Uh, a Boston mega deal. Yeah, I mean, uh, the one I've speculated before is some kind of like Pablo Sandoval and stuff for James Shields trade. But like when I wrote the post, like one of the co- one of the guys I thought would make sense for San Diego to make that kind of deal was Jackie Bradley Jr. Because uh, the Padres need a center fielder and like kind of a young, cheap uh, upside player could make sense for them. <laughs> but since I wrote the article, Jackie Bradley's hit like 75 home runs. Yeah. And, uh, I think the Red Sox have kind of gotten used to this Bradley Betts, Rusney Castillo outfield that actually catches balls. And then now they're like, man, maybe we're not in such a hurry to put Hanley Ramirez back in the lineup right now. Uh, so I wouldn't be surprised if Bradley has played his way out of trade consideration. Certainly he has played him, played his way out of player to be named later consideration because you have to, to be a PTBNL. Um, you have to be in the minor leagues, and it would be pretty weird for the Red Sox to option Jackie Bradley back to AAA at this point, uh, especially if they were then like, oh, yeah, we just named a, a, made a trade with a player to be named later, and we're not recalling Jackie Bradley for reasons we can't discuss. Yeah, hush. Hush, everybody. Yeah, uh, it would uh, be the Trey Turner thing all over again. J- j- uh, well, yeah, and in fact, you'd be doing it with a former major leaguer, a ma- right. guy who was performing in the major leagues. It would be, it would be like, the protests would be even louder. Right. Um the uh let's see with regard to Jackie Bradley of course uh, uh Matthew Corey wrote about him Matthew Corey wrote about him today and uh, we found some footage of his swing from last year and also from this year wait a second my wife is leaving one moment okay Kelly like forever no uh mm-hmm. she probably wants to be leaving forever what are you doing she doesn't she well she's got a broken hand oh that sucks. Yeah. All right. Love you. Oh, yeah. Uh, Matthew Corey wrote about Jackie Bradley today and found uh, we found some footage from last year of his swing versus this year. So Sideview in particular was um, was indicative of the change. And his swing, I I am no Dan Farnsworth. I am not a swing analyst of any of any description. But his swing last year looked it looked so ugly. Yeah. Uh, he would sort of lurch forward. And then stop, and then lurch forward again, which does not seem like your is the most efficient use of your body. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing with Bradley that's interesting is like in the minor leagues, he actually didn't strike out that much, so the rest of his profile worked. Like he drew some walks, he made some contact, he had enough power to get by, and he's obviously a very good defensive center fielder. So you can basically look at his offensive profile and be like, that's ah, you know Angel Pagan or something like that, and you're not expecting. You know, huge offensive performance, or you know, even if it's Juan Lagares, like if it's something like that with plus defense in center field, that's a good major league player. Uh, but someone brought Bradley, up Ke- someone brought up Kevin Kiermeyer as well as another possibility. Yeah, that's maybe like the high end, right? Because Kiermeyer has more power, I think, than Bradley probably ever will. Yeah. Uh, but right, it's in the range of kinds of players. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think if you uh, look at what Bradley was in the big leagues, he was more. 
I don't know, Brendan Ryan or something. Like it was a lot of strikeouts and no power. And if you're, uh, it's a hard combination to make work. Or Anthony Ghost is maybe a better fit, right? Like, uh, you know, a toolsy athletic center fielder who, you know, hit some of the minors, but just, you know, that high strikeout, low power combination is really tough. You have to run like a 350 BABIP to be a decent hitter. Uh, when you're striking out 25% of the time and not hitting home runs. And, uh, you know, I think for Bradley, it's gonna, the fix is gonna have to be either eliminating the strikeouts or hitting for power. I mean, you'd have to, you have to do one of those two things. He had some seasons in the minors when he didn't, well, I guess in particular I'm thinking of his 2012 season. He's a 22 year old at high A. And he, he, he had this great strikeout rate. You know, it was only like 13% or something like that. Uh, and he 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 transitioned that a lot, or he brought that with him to Double A for a little bit, but then it uh, well, it did stick, I guess. Yeah, and it seems like that's going to probably be the thing: is is he going to hit for power? Because it seems like the contact rate has eroded uh, to the point where he's probably not going to be a high contact Angel Pagan type guy in the big leagues. Right. Uh, so he's going to have to turn into. You know, uh, a guy who slugs, you know, 400 or something, uh, because the on-base percentage is always going to be low. Okay. Dave Kim, what you've done is to uh, satisfy and fulfill your obligation. Satisfy two and fulfill your obligation. Satisfy and fulfill your obligations. Yes, to, to Fangraphs Audio. Hooray, hooray. Hooray. Uh, thank you, Dave Cameron, for appearing on this episode. You're welcome, Carson Sestouli. That has been Managing Editor Dave Cameron. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.